the word judgment has gotten a pretty bad rap. And today there are no two words, perhaps, except for Jesus Christ, maybe, that are more known and abused from God's word than the words that start Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. What are they? Judge not. And the sad truth is that when those words get used, get thrown away and misused, you arrive at a nation in the world that looks a lot like the ancient Assyrian capital of Nineveh, the people of which God said in the book of Jonah at the very end of it, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Judge not? Is that what it means? Suspend all that? Because actually that's what I just did here. Do you know what I just did? I just judged. I just discerned. I dared to discriminate truth from falsehood. (laughs) You know, for all of our talk about judge not, we sure do it a whole lot, don't we? Every day. I'm going to get some water here. Every day. We make decisions. We make judgment calls about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear. When the kid does something we don't like, we make a judgment call about it. We're going to explode on them or not. When something bad happens to us, we make a judgment call about what we're going to do, and we also make the judgment call about the person who did whatever wrong to us. Now, my question is, is that all bad? Because if you go on in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about planks and specks. If you have a plank in your eye, don't go try to help your brother. Get rid of his speck in his eye. Deal with your own plank first. Judge yourself. And then you'll be able to help your brother. You'll be able to judge rightly. And even in the church, Paul talks about judge with right judgment. And it's very easy to get into a, 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 a pattern of don't judge at all, don't make any discerning and, dis- and correct assessments when the language of our day is if you judge, therefore you are saying something evil about someone. Is that what Scripture says? So today we're going to be redeeming a word, judgment, and we're going to be using it in a very, very risky way. James in, three in, in James in his book in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, when he speaks of our mouths, he says, With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Do we judge rightly, church? Do we seek to see things as they truly are? 
Or do we judge by appearance? Do we judge the lady's laundry through a dirty window? To use, that's a great illustration. <laughs> we make judgments of everything, and we even make judgments of God. Do we judge him rightly? <laughs> and, you should, and in our day and age, you're thinking, wait, Aaron, we're, it, is it even okay to judge God? Well, in our text today, in John chapter 7, hopefully we're going to see that Jesus himself does not tell the people to cease judging him, but calls them to judge him, and he calls us to judge him with right judgment and believe. So would you please stand with me as we read John chapter 7 this morning, beginning in verse 14. This is God's word. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled and said, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made, a whole man, I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You have a seat. This passage is given to us this morning so that we would, so that we would judge Jesus with right judgment and believe him. Again, that seems like a really risky and bold thing to do if we're thinking only with the world's definition of judgment rather than scriptures. And there's at least two senses before we get going further that we need to make some clarity on of which the scripture uses the word judgment. One is ultimate, like determining who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's not what this passage is talking about. Okay, When we judge when we are to judge with right judgment in the church, if we're to judge Jesus rightly, we do not get a say as to whether he goes to heaven or hell. We don't get a say, and we don't get ultimate authority, and we don't get to determine or even know ultimately until we're all there who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's God's business and his alone. But because Jesus finishes this passage by saying, judge with right judgment, he means that we are to judge. We are to evaluate something. We are to understand if it is right or wrong. 
And Jesus, before an unbelieving crowd, invites them and invites us to do that with him and says, and says, look at me. Look, use my standard and look at my work and see if I'm true. See if I'm believable. So let's see if this is the case. Number one, we are to judge Jesus by faith. The Jews therefore marveled at him, saying, how is, this, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Hopefully you recall other passages in the Gospels where people refer to Jesus as one who had authority, not as one of their scribes. And later in, in this discourse that we're in at the temple during the Feast of Booths, the religious leaders are going to send soldiers to arrest Jesus and they're going to come back empty-handed and they're going to say, no one ever spoke like this man. And I bring those things up because as we look at this passage in the first, in first century context, originality among teachers was not seen as a good thing or a marketable job skill. It was actually seen as arrogance or at worst blasphemous. Every educated teacher in this time would, look, would teach like a book of sources. This rabbi said this about this passage. This rabbi said this about this passage. And so on and so forth. Always quoting somebody else so as not to speak on their own authority. And Jesus does that too, but they don't see it. So they say, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He's teaching on par or above with the rabbis of the day. But he doesn't have all the human sources. And actually their comment is not really that complimentary. They're not saying, wow, we'd like to hear more. They're saying, this guy doesn't have the degree we think we should. he should. He didn't consult with the guy that I am sitting under. They are judging him and judging him wrongly. And they're judging his teaching wrongly. What are they missing? What are they missing? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's, here's the key, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. What are they missing as they judge him? Faith. The first step of judging rightly, the first step of verifying the truth is faith. I mean, think about it. If you are bullheaded about something right from the start, how likely are you to believe something different on your own when shown contrary evidence? 
<laughs> the, world, the world we're in today often likes to believe that if you just have the facts, then you'll come to the right conclusions. That makes a huge assumption. And my question to that is, how's that working? We've got facts all over the place. How's it working coming to the right conclusions? <laughs> I recall one Bible teacher using a proverb from the tech IT world. He says, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. And don't get me wrong. Facts are pointers to reality. They're designed to be. Jesus is, I mean, here's a couple of facts. Jesus' teaching was a cut above all the others. Not only that, he wasn't seeking his own glory. He's already said that back in chapter 5, but here he says it again. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then he says in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. It is a fact that there is arrogance about saying something that is totally original with us. As if we were the ones who made it up all in our own little vacuum. That's not... that. It is. It's a fact of arrogance. And, he perform, and another fact is he performs signs, which we'll get to in a little bit, to show that he really has been sent by someone, who, someone superior, God himself. But the facts don't, cons, don't convince the spiritually dead to look to the ultimate reality. Just because the bronze serpent, to use John chapter 3, is on the pole doesn't mean that people are automatically going to look. And how do we know from this passage that they don't convince? If any, because he doesn't say, if anyone knows the facts, then he'll know. He says, if anyone will, if anyone's will, his desire, his volition is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. There is the fact of teaching. There's the fact of Jesus' claim not to speak on his own, out of himself. But to put it negatively, no one will know that the teaching is from God if they aren't willing to do God's will. If they aren't willing to hear him out. But if they are willing, they will know. So when he says, what, when he says willing, if anyone's will is to do God's will, what is he talking about? It's faith. It's believing The scripture's teaching, however, is that apart from God's intervening, from God's willing, we will not come to know God. We do not want to know God. We do not want to come to him. Romans 3 verse 11 says, no one seeks for God. And that's quoting two Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. We do not will to know God. We do not desire to know God. We do not believe God of ourselves. And what that is, is that's the essence of sinful state. Why don't we want to know God? Because he exposes everything that we hold dear. He exposes it as what it is apart from him. And if it's apart from him, it is against him. And in ourselves, that's our, 
That's where we are. We are spiritually dead before him. We are consumed and enslaved by our sins. And this is where we will stay if God does not intervene. So what does Jesus say was God's will? I mean, this is a huge question. We're not going to unpack it all today, but there are several answers that God gives to the question, what is his will? But do you remember what Jesus said in this gospel to the crowd of what the will of God is for his people? The crowd a few chapters ago asked Jesus, remember this, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And the works of God meaning what the works that God wills for us to do, the work that the God requires us of us, his work, what he desires. And what was Jesus' answer? This is the work of God. This is the will of God. This is what God requires. This is what God desires. This is his work, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And John has as the great theme of his whole book, and I'll repeat it every single time, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the will of God here. And you know what that also means? That means God has intervened. He has intervened so we can believe. So if anyone says they are willing to do God's will but, refuses, but refuse to come to him and see him as he is to judge him rightly by faith, they're not really willing to do God's will. Are you? Are you willing to do God's will? to believe in the one whom he has sent. God's will is ultimately that we do believe and that in believing we will know the truth of Jesus in his words. We will judge him rightly. We will judge him by faith and we will believe him. Well, who is he? I mean, the crowd here, both, and it's a mix, and this mix becomes important in, is it's a mix of crowd who don't know Jesus from anybody, except they've maybe heard his name. And there's religious leaders who think they know Jesus and are very, very, very antagonistic toward him. And both of those groups within this group have ideas about Jesus. They're judging Jesus based on their ideas of him. Where did they get their ideas? Where do people get their ideas about Jesus? Where do we get our ideas about Jesus? Where, here's the better question, where should we get our ideas about Jesus? By what standard do we judge Jesus? Number two, we are to judge Jesus by his standard, God's word. We are to judge Jesus by his standard, God's word. Jesus answered them, verse 16, And that's the answer. Jesus answered them. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. We are here today. We are here today because of a fundamental assumption that God has spoken. It's a right assumption that God has spoken, and I am profoundly humbled by that as I preach this text this morning, and I'm grateful. Because we as Christians, <laughs> excuse me, we as Christians have absolutely nothing to say, no good news to proclaim if God has not spoken. We have no good thing to believe if God has not spoken. And if, here's a terrifying thought, if God has not spoken, neither has Jesus. And in this passage, we are made aware that God has chosen to speak and to speak his word and speak it in two forms. Jesus himself and the written word that testifies of him. The one who seeks his own own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. What's he talking about? In, this is one of those great mysteries. This is the Holy Trinity again. That three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three divine persons in one divine essence. One holy community. God is God. But Jesus makes it clear that his authority is not self-derived. Jesus is not a separate God from all the rest. He submits to his Father. And his authority comes from the one who has spoken to him and desires to speak through him. I'll give an imperfect example. You, give, you tell, tell your son or daughter, if you have multiple, multiple kids, you tell your son or daughter, go tell your other brother or sister to do this. There's a few key words that really, really matter when that child goes to tell the other child. What I usually hear is, you need to do this. Whose authority is that child banking on? Their own. You need to do this, because I said so. It's the game of telephone, and it just failed right there. But what are the key words? Mom told you to do this. Mom said you need to do this. Dad said you need to do this. That's speaking not on their own authority, but on on the one who sent them. And then it's up to the the last one to whether they're going to obey or not. But it's not on the but it's not like, well, they can't use the excuse, well, I was I didn't want to obey my brother or sister. No. (laughs) Who are you who are you disobeying? Who are you obeying? Jesus does not speak on his own authority, but the one who sent him. So, as John wrote in his epistle, anyone who rejects Jesus rejects God the Father too, the one whom the Jews claimed was their God. And when Jesus says, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood, that can mean a general truth. 
But Jesus is using it very specifically, saying he is utterly unique in this. God sent his one and only son. He didn't send anybody else. Jesus, above all, is the one who perfectly seeks the glory of his Father. And not only does Jesus speak the truth, he is the truth. I mean, isn't that what God's word is? It's wholly true in every respect. God never, ever lies when he opens his mouth, and that should give us great assurance. And Jesus even prayed for his followers in John 17. He said, said, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And John even begins his gospel by declaring that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But here's a question for us in the 21st century. How, do we, how are we to know this word in the flesh in the 21st century when he's no longer physically here in his, in his body but has ascended to heaven? Because see, in our day, we have many versions of Jesus floating around. And even, and even like those days, there were many false messiahs promising what they could not deliver. How can we know? We judge Jesus by his standard. John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. How are we to test the spirits? How are we to even evaluate whether Jesus is true? We are to come the same way they are supposed to. We are to come to what is written of him. He says, The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And then he goes on to say, Has not Moses given you the law? And you remember what Jesus said about the law of Moses? He said it back in John chapter 5. He said, Moses wrote of me. The whole point, the big climax of why God gave the word, his word through Moses was to point people to his Messiah. I mean, even... Even Jesus does not say your, your full, the fullness of your belief is, is because I'm, just, I'm right here, physically. He says, look to what is written of me and come to me. I mean, Peter, the Apostle Peter, he was with James and John on a, on a mountain when Jesus was glorified, right? Do you remember that story? And you know what Peter writes about this experience in his second letter? He says, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And he says this, 
And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And then he tells his hearers, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We are to come to what is written of him. And when we do, a good thing happens. It's a hard thing, but it's a good thing. Because we find that Matthew chapter 7 is true. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, the good news is that God's word is a double-edged sword. You're like, good news? (laughs) See, with it, we can see that Jesus is true and that there is no falsehood and that we can come to him. We need not be like the Pharisees who refused to come to him, even though they'd read his word. And with that same word, we are shown of our need to trust him and turn from our sins. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus asked the crowd, the word of God reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Jews had been given one of the most amazing treasures in the world, God's law, that as Jesus told in John chapter 5, testified of him. Moses wrote of me. But what are they doing here? Here they are. They're plotting, what? Murder in their hearts. They're breaking the sixth commandment. Using God's word that testifies to the word of God as a judgment against him. but you can't ultimately use God's word against him. We need to be very careful here, church. We have been given one of the greatest treasures in the history of the world, this book, which contains both the law of Moses and the record of Jesus who fulfilled it. but we can be tempted to use it against God. We do not have an adversary who just leaves us alone. We can be tempted to use God's word against him. How? If we simply read and do not come to him. We're going to be starting this fall reading the Bible together as a church. And there has been one thing that I've thought about in in discussion with the elders about this that has given me some pause about reading the Bible, and it's this. If we do not seek the will of God, our reading the Bible will be just like these Pharisees and Jewish authorities here. We will, as Jesus said, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
if our hearts are not desiring of God and his ways, we'll read the Bible and still reject Jesus, even though he's all over it. But you know what Jesus never said to the Jews and he never says to Christians? He never says, stop reading your Bibles so you can come to me. He doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He told them to read their Bibles and come to him so that they would know who they're coming to. That we'd know him for who he is and we would believe him for who he is and that we would trust his great promises. We must seek to do the will of God. We must believe and then we will understand and then we will judge Jesus by his own standard, the word, rightly. And he will be proved true. Judge Jesus with right judgment and believe him. The crowd is not there yet. What do they say when he exposes them? (laughs) They think he's crazy. You ever read the word of God and thought, what in the world is going on here? When I've read the Bible, my notes are usually more filled with question marks than they are with, ah, I get it. (laughs) This crowd thinks he's crazy. You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? As one person said, categorizing people is a time-honored way of refusing to take them seriously. It may be that they were expo- that their motives were exposed, the whole crowd. But again, we have to remember that this crowd was a mixed crowd of, the, of commoners and religious leaders, Pharisees who had sought the, to wield the word of God against Jesus and judge him wrongly. So Jesus provides an additional means of judging him of finding out that he's the real deal. And it flows right out of the word. Number three, we are to judge Jesus by his greater works. Verse 21. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do you remember the work he's talking about? Back in John chapter 5, Jesus found a man who had been lame, sitting at, the, at a pool. He'd been lame for 38 years, almost four decades of his life, which back then is most of his life. And in an instant, Jesus had restored his body to full physical health. And how did everybody respond? Do you remember? Was it joyful celebration in the, in the streets saying, the Messiah has come! <laughs> I laugh. It's kind of sad too because it wasn't a celebration. It, was, it started an interrogation. 
trying to find out who would dare tell a man to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath. (laughs) If you read that passage, they completely overlook the fact that the guy is healed. So when Jesus says here that you all marvel at it, a good chunk of that is not excited amazement. It's scandalized fury. And so Jesus lays forth an argument, an argument that they would understand. He, maybe some of this doesn't, maybe this doesn't, um, what am I trying to say, get you going, but this, this is an argument of case law. So we have to understand something about how Jews interpreted the Mosaic laws and commands. Hold on. It's actually really kind of cool. So there are two commands given here. Circumcision and Sabbath. Which is more important? Because if you have a baby born on the Sabbath, the next Sabbath, and it's a boy, he has to be circumcised. Everybody know what circumcision is? I'm going to put you parents on the spot and say, if your kids don't know and they ask you, don't be ashamed to tell them. It's in the Bible. Jesus is talking about it. It's right here. Anyway, at a significance level, circumcision was the sign of belonging to the children of Abraham and was later adopted into the Mosaic Law as a ritual that separated Hebrew men from the nations around them. And what was the Sabbath? It was to be a day of rest, a day of not work, a day abstaining from work, a day of mercy. And it was alluded to before Moses was given the law, but it was not formally a commandment until given at Mount Sinai. And it was one of the markers of the covenant God had made with the people that distinguished them from all the other nations. So it was a national symbol, not just a symbol of the children of Abraham. So all this to say, (laughs) because circumcision was given before the Sabbath, in standard Jewish interpretation, circumcision took precedence over the Sabbath. So the nation of Israel circumcised boys on the Sabbath. And what that means is they worked on the Sabbath. It means they broke the Sabbath in order to keep the law, at least in terms of priority. You see where Jesus is going with this? He challenges them on this. He says, verse 23, If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? What's he saying? He's saying, if you do a ceremonial work on the Sabbath that takes away from a person's body in order to keep the law, why in the world are you upset, seeking to kill me even, which is against the law, by the way, that I would do a restorative work on the Sabbath, which is the point of the Sabbath, and not take away from a man's body, but make it whole? Then the mic drop. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. See, in this country, we, 
have written a system of law. And its premise within that law is that someone is innocent until proven guilty. Why is that there? It comes from a Judeo-Christian worldview that says, judge with right judgment. And we as the church are to judge not by appearances, but with right judgment. Do we judge by appearance between rich and poor? Do we judge by appearance between young and old? Do we judge by appearance between ethnicities and skin color? Do we judge by where you're from? Do we judge outsider versus insider? Judging rightly is that the Lord God has made all of us. And judging rightly is remembering that we are wonderfully commanded to love our neighbor as if he were our very self. And judging rightly is being reminded that his, that this church across the world is not where we call the shots. This is Jesus' church. It is his and his alone, not to be shared with another, not to be run by another. If they had judged with right judgment, they would not only have seen that Jesus did what was supposed to be done on the Sabbath, he was seeking the refreshment and rest of his neighbor as a, as a man. He didn't do just what was supposed to be done on the Sabbath, but they would have seen, they would have been stunned. They would have been truly amazed and excited to know that it had been done by the Lord of the Sabbath, by the word that came from his mouth. And that it was given as a sign to tell the people that the Christ who comes to restore and make whole, who saves not merely the body but the soul, has at last shown up. And is here not to condemn but to save. Who is to take what is dead and make it alive. Who is to take what is broken and build it back together. Better than before. Not opposed to God but part of his own family. We are to judge Jesus by his greater works. Judge Jesus with right judgment and believe him. So how are we to judge? By the cover of the book? Some people see the black cover of this book and they think you're just going to rail at them. How do we judge? By our own ideas of God? By appearances and lesser works? Or do we open up the book and see Him and judge by faith, by His standard, the Word, 
and by his greater works, which he has done for us. Judge him and find him fully true, fully faithful, fully able. And let him judge you. That's why he wants you to judge him. (laughs) When we see him as he rightly is, when we judge him rightly, the one whose teaching is truly from God, who did not come to magnify himself, but humble himself by becoming a servant, Sure, he served a lame man and restored him, but much more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When we see him and believe him, we will rejoice that the word spoken of him is true, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Judge him with right judgment and believe him. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of a song, You Make Beautiful Things. out of dust. By your word, you speak and it is done. And God, we thank you for the privilege to hear your word this morning. To hear it across the service, even in the songs we sing, the prayers we pray. Thank you for allowing us to hear your word. We pray that you would wipe away our doubts. You would wipe away our fears. We pray that you would convict us and that we would receive it as a kindness of a God who wants to save Thank you, Lord, that you always do what is right and good and true. Thank you that you did not come to serve, or you did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give your life as a ransom for many. And thank you, Lord, that we. It is by grace and grace alone that we get the privilege to read beyond that spot that we just read today. That we know that you through and through are true and in in you there is no falsehood. And we know that everything that you have said from beginning to end glorifies God and is true and is and can be believed and trusted and trusted with our everything lord we pray lord we pray that you would bring many more sons and daughters to glory we pray that people would hear your word and 
Faith comes by hearing. We pray, Father, that people would believe and be restored like the man who was healed. Perhaps physically, but much more so eternally, spiritually to be with you forever. Lord, you are worthy. Your name is above every name. Help us to judge with right judgment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.